You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. 5 to 16. Verse 5 to 16, John 11. And it reads, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last time we were in John, we discovered three new characters, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They are siblings who live in Judea. They live in a small town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. And if you will recall, Jesus and the apostles left that area after Jesus had once again ruffled the feathers of the Pharisees by declaring himself to be equal with God. They had tried to kill him via stoning for his alleged blasphemy, but instead he escaped the area. You could probably guess as to why. It was not his time, right? It was not his time. While away from Judea, Jesus received a note from Mary and Martha regarding the overall failing health of their brother Lazarus. What was the point of the note? Obviously, the ladies wanted to make sure Jesus was aware that someone whom he loved was dying. Their objective was to put their hope and prayer in Jesus. They wanted to put their hope and prayer in Jesus, that in some way he would help their brother. You'll recall that there was no actual prayer there. There's no actual request other than, Lazarus, the one whom you love, is dying was is ill right on his deathbed essentially where we left off was verse 4 where Jesus tells his disciples that this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it he says this knowing full well that Lazarus either will die or is dying But in the death of Lazarus, both the Father and the Son will be glorified through it. As 
has been covered, glory isn't so much equal to praise, but more akin to the understanding and knowledge of who God is, right? It's about who God is. Jesus will receive glory in the resurrection of Lazarus, as those witnesses to the miracle will indeed come to a better knowledge of who Jesus is. They will understand better than they did before, right? And through that, Jesus and the Father will receive glory. What naturally follows is the praise that both the Father and the Son are worthy of, right? That's the point. So we begin today's message with verse 5 that sets up the rest of the story. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is the second time in two verses where Jesus' love of Lazarus and conversely his sisters is mentioned by the Apostle John. Seems like overkill. We first learned of Jesus' love for Lazarus in verse 3 with the note from Mary and Martha, and then we now have John telling us again in verse 5 that Jesus did indeed love all three. It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. Right? What's he trying to tell us? Something about regarding the love of Christ. Like he won't allow, this is John, that John won't allow the reader to interpret what's about to follow, the actions and what Jesus said in any other light. That's the point. The overemphasis of the love of Jesus for these three people has everything to do with how we understand what follows. What we read moving forward must be interpreted through the lens of the love of Christ. Okay? Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. There are a couple things I'd like to point out from this verse. First... It seems odd to us, or at least I think it should, that upon the news of Lazarus' illness, Jesus does what? Nothing. Jesus decides to do nothing. He stays right where he was. What would you do? What would I do? It's fair to say that you or I would drop everything and go immediately to our loved one, would we not? Haven't we all done this? Upon hearing the news that my grandmother who lived in Edmonton was ill, same idea, grandma's on her deathbed, in the same manner that Lazarus was, I immediately turned my car around. I was on this road right, right here. I was on this road at the time coming down the hill. Actually, no, it was on sunset. That's right. I I was coming down the hill on the phone with my sister, and I turned the car around right then and there. I'm I'm, I'm going to Edmonton right now. I didn't even give it a second thought. And what's funny is neither would any of you. You would all do the same thing. Surely you have all... You all have similar stories to mine. Mine is not, not novel. So in one regard, Jesus' actions look nothing like what a person who loves another would do. 
I believe this is why John begins with two references regarding Jesus' love for Lazarus and for Mary and for Martha. How does one who loves Lazarus as he does not do anything? It struck me in my studies that his disciples never said anything regarding Jesus' apparent lack of concern. That seemed odd to me. For two days, what did they do? Were they at all concerned about Lazarus? Were they at all curious what Jesus was going to do? Maybe the disciples thought that Jesus would just heal him from a distance. We don't have any record of what was said or done during those two days. But what struck me was the likelihood that they had no interest in going to Lazarus because they had just escaped with their lives. They were in Jerusalem. They just got out, right, during Hanukkah. It's not that they didn't care, but it's possible that they had no interest in going back there. Boy, that's tough luck, Lazarus. You're on your own. We're not coming back there. We'll get stoned to death. What, are you kidding me? Of course, this conjecture on my part is sustained by the reaction that we get from the disciples when Jesus eventually gives them the news that they were heading back to Judea. <coughs> can, we, can we say fairly that they weren't overly excited by the prospect? The second detail I'd like to point out is that from the timing we get from John, it would appear that even as the note from Mary and Martha was making its way to Jesus, Lazarus was likely already dead. He was likely already dead, or at least very, very close. Jesus, leaving immediately, would still have found Lazarus dead two days. He would have already been dead two days. Why is that important? As I may or may not have mentioned before, I can't remember anymore, but the Jews believed that the spirit of a person hung around the body for three days after death, and with, of course, the tiny chance that the spirit could come back into the body, reviving it. That's what they thought. Had Jesus come back immediately, Lazarus would have only been dead two days. And of course, if Christ revived him, there would be scoffers that would have offered up the opinion that the spirit of Lazarus simply came back into him, right? But by waiting an extra two days, Jesus' arrival in Bethany was four days after his death taking away the objection that Lazarus rose on his own accord. In fact, we're going to see that Lazarus was dead long enough that Martha was worried about the stench that would emanate from the tomb. A body that has been dead four days offers up a particular odor. Not a pleasant one. Jesus tarried. Jesus waited. Jesus did not act immediately, but he obviously had good reason to, but we're going to return to that a bit later. We get to verse 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going back there again? So after a two-day delay, Jesus makes the announcement that, hey boys, Time to go. From this, I think it's fair to say that this was not bantered about as an option over those two days. 
This was not something that they had been talking about. The disciples seemed quite off guard by the prospect. What do you mean? Go back to Judea. Jesus, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Don't you remember? They were just they were just trying to kill you. We got out of there by the skin of our teeth, and you want to go back there? <laughs> what for? Of course, Jesus had a lesson for them to learn, starting with verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Are there not 12 hours in a day? This is a fascinating question put forth by Jesus to his disciples. What point was Jesus making asking the question? First, let's deal with the physical aspects of the question. In antiquity, as I'm sure you're aware, there were no watches, meaning stopwatches on your wrist, right? There were no means or methods of creating workable light to offset the darkness at night. Time was obviously then split into day and night. Geographically speaking, Judea is further south than we are, so they had less of a time swing between daylight hours in the summer and winter compared to us. I'm pretty sure they didn't have daylight savings time either, so they didn't have to worry about that. So there are three obvious implications that we can extract from Jesus' question. Are there not 12 hours in a day? The first thing that we should keep in mind is the context of the question. This question is asked directly in response to the concern of the disciples, namely this returning to Judea, right? And that by returning to Judea, Jesus, as we find out from Thomas in verse 16, and the disciples themselves are putting their lives in danger. So this was said in response to that, right? Jesus' question has to do with, first and foremost, whether or not the disciples are going to trust, get this, are they going to trust that Jesus will not return to Judea at this time and die at the hands of the Jews? Jesus is going to return to Judea and he's not going to be stoned to death, right? Nor will they. Why? Because there are 12 hours in a day. Because there are 12 hours in a day and Jesus has work to do and the Father has given him the requisite time to complete it. Which leads to the second point. God gives the time. God gives the time. In this particular instance, Jesus is referring to the work that he has been given to do and that there is time given to accomplish it. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Even as his ministry at this point is coming to a close in short order, you can call it the sunset of his ministry, the sun's going down on his ministry, there is still work to do. And God has given him the time to do it. God is the author of time. He is the beginning. He is the end. God gave Jesus a certain amount of time to get accomplished what was required of him. Galatians 4 verses 4 to 5 says, but when, the, but when the set time had fully come, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the set time had fully come, God has a time for everything. And it's on God's time. John continually reminds us of the fact that even though the Pharisees wanted Christ killed, he continually escaped their clutches. Why? Because it wasn't his time. Because it wasn't his time. Similarly, God gives each and every one of us a certain amount of time to walk this earth. This is the lesson. Our days are counted. Job speaks of our general condition in uh, Job 14.5 where he states, Since his, meaning man's, days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Each of us has been given an appointed amount of time on earth to do the works that he has set before us. He's given us the time. We cannot gain a minute more. We cannot lose a minute less. With that in mind, does it not encourage us to be bold in our works that everything we do in obedience to Christ, we can do with iron in our spines? That we can take courage and go forth? We need not worry. We need not complain. We need not be anxious over the results of our work. There is nothing that can be done to us that has not already been ordained from the beginning of time. I saw a meme yesterday, good timing. I can't remember who said it. It was a church father of something, I'm sure. But it said, until our work on earth is done, we are immortal. We are immortal. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is not something futuristic, but rather something that can be experienced in the here and now. And like the disciples, Jesus may ask us, are there not 12 hours in the day? Are there not 12 hours in the day? I know you worry about the threats. I know you worry about the fines. I know in some areas you may worry about your imprisonments. Some of you may even worry about your coming death, your job loss, your relations that break, and on and on and on that list can go. But do you trust me? That's the question. Do you trust me? For I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is calling us. Folks, daylight's burning. Let's go. Which leads to my third point. Clint Black, I think, saying it. There's no time to kill. Right? There's no time to kill. If there are 12 hours in a day, you know what there isn't? 13. If there are 12 hours in a day, there's not 13. I know we have some procrastinators in this room. Hands up, all procrastinators. I'm not even going to look. I know who you are. 
The most frustrating thing I find about being a procrastinator myself is that if I really think about it, what am I doing when I procrastinate? What am I doing when I procrastinate? Aren't I presuming upon God that He will give me the time that I'm wasting? Isn't that my presumption? God doesn't owe me or you anything. He doesn't owe you anything. In fact, God has given me a mission. He has given me the talent or talents to complete the mission. He's also given me the time to do it in. Same goes for you, each and every one of you. What am I doing when I am wasteful with my time? Aren't I burning daylight hours? God's given me 12 hours in a day. What, what am I doing? Proverbs is full of warnings against slothfulness. Now, I don't, want to go, I don't want to get lost in the weeds explaining every manifestation of what it means to waste time. But for the sake of clarity, I'll leave you with this. I didn't know how else to put it. Because I, I don't want to get into the legalistic. And I know some of you are like, yeah, well, what, what exactly, you know, should I feel bad that I'm exhausted, I want to rest? My clarification to you is simple. You know what I'm talking about. Done. You know what I'm talking about. You know when you're wasting time. You know when you're burning daylight hours. What I'm clearly not talking about is those times when you relax. All of us need to relax, especially moms with young kids. There's time for you to relax, right? When you take a breath, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about when you rest. The best news about all of this, I think, is when Paul makes it clear that to the Christian, the simplest things, whether you eat or drink, or he says, or whatever you do, the very breath you breathe, we do unto the Lord. Right? Our lives should reflect godliness no matter what we're doing, giving thanks to Him who provides and blesses us with many blessings. Don't waste the time God has so graciously given you. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Don't waste it. Jesus continues, If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Again, Jesus is speaking in two senses right? The one is obviously physical, in which the light is, of course, the sun in the sky. You can see it during the day. You can clearly see the obstacles. You can clearly see the dangers to your physical health. You can see what you're doing with regards to your work. At night, without light, you cannot see the obstacles. You stumble. You fall. You cannot see the dangers. You cannot work as you cannot see, this much is obvious. But reading this, one cannot help but recognize the language, and of course, it's very deliberate. Jesus, in chapter 8, verse 12, said, I am the light of this world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
chapter 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Christ is the sun by which we walk by day. Christ is the sun by which we walk by day. He is the one by which we see. He is the one by which we work. He is the one by which our path is set before us and by his kingdom we see the snares of others who would bring us to harm. It's by him we see this. Those without the light walk in darkness. Just thought of a proverb. The fool, the one who walks in the dark, enters his own trap. He can't see. He doesn't see the foolishness of his own thinking. Those without Christ do not see. Doesn't that want to make you break out in amazing grace? Amazing grace. I won't sing it. No one wants to hear that. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind. But what? But now I see. But now I see. Brothers and sisters, only Christians know what it means to see. Only Christians know what it means to see. Only Christians who have the Holy Spirit, who have had their eyes open to the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ, can truly know what John Newton meant when he wrote Amazing Grace. One of the most heartbreaking things I see are the number of people who love the melody of the song and sing along but have no earthly idea of what it is they're singing. They have no earthly idea. And it happens all the time. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that Jesus said this to draw the disciples' attention to something specific about time and salvation. After all, this kind of struck me. He's saying this, to his disciples, one of which was Judas. One of which was Judas. Judas was walking with Jesus for almost three years by this time, and yet he was a man walking in darkness. He's got the Lord of glory for three years, walking with him, talking with him, learning from him, and he walked in darkness. How is that even possible? I'll get to that. At this time, Judas, like I said, this is coming to the end of Jesus' ministry. Judas was about to stumble. And not to stumble, he was about to fall, and he was about to fall hard. Never to stand again. Jesus is giving his disciples a warning here. And he's giving you and I a warning here. Jesus is the light, and in him we have our life. Amen? In Him, we have our very being. In Him, we pursue righteousness and seek to advance His kingdom. Without Him, we can do nothing. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Without Him, we are lost. Without Him, we don't see. Thinking ourselves wise, but in reality, we are nothing but fools. 
And before I go on, for those of you that did not walk with Christ, I didn't. I was the fool who sang Amazing Grace. Had no idea what I was singing. And then at age 33, when Christ saved me, when Christ opened my eyes, this song brings you to tears. Why? Because you see. Because you can see like you've never seen before. It is entirely possible to be baptized and be a member of the church, to taste the goodness of the word and the sacraments, to experience the fellowship of the body, yet still be utterly lost. It's possible. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Do you not realize that, Paul is saying? Unless, he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Doesn't everybody at that point go, there's a test. What, what's the test? Give me the test. Show me the test so I can see. Thankfully, Paul gives it. What is this test? Paul tells us. That you may do what is right. That's the test. How are you walking, saint? Are you walking in the light? Are you doing what is right? Paul continues, we can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. That's the Christian. Only for the truth. Doing what is right. Are we a people who are known to do the right thing? No matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter how hard it is. Do you do the right thing? That's the question. Are we a people known for pursuing that which is true? Do you care about truth? And not just a convenient truth. How do each of you answer these questions? The obvious problem that I see is that if you're one who does not pursue truth, you won't pursue truthfully whether or not you pursue truth. Does that make sense? This is where the body can assist you. This is where family discipleship comes in. This is where a church body comes in. This is where others who love you can say to you, I see a problem. I see a problem. Let's talk about it. Right? Now in verses 11 to 13, we have a brief conversation between Jesus and his disciples regarding Lazarus being asleep and Jesus going to awaken him for the sake of time. uh, Only because, uh, as I was telling uh, Amy earlier today that my goal is to try to have the gospel of John done by the end of the decade so there are some verses I got to skim over this is one of them right very briefly I just want to point out that for those who love Jesus for those whom are found in Christ death is not something to worry about death for the Christian isn't a big deal To live is Christ and to die is gain, says the Apostle Paul. 
There was a man who, Paul was a man who lived for Jesus. He was not afraid of any man, knowing full well that he too was given a task. He too was given a job and that he could do that job, he would do that task until Jesus called him home. Right? And death would bring gain, he says, being forever in the presence of Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Verses 14 to 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Why was it important for the apostle to begin this story with an emphasis on the love of Jesus for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? What was the point of that? Because of lines like this. Because of lines like this. Lazarus has died, and I'm glad I wasn't there. What? How do we interpret this? John tells us by the love that Christ had for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. That's how we interpret this, right? But it does seem odd, right? On the face of it, it seems odd. But because we know the story, we know the context of what made Jesus glad. So there's three things. First, as already stated, to die in Christ is to be absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Jesus went from life to life. Right? He went from life to life. Winston Churchill, for all you young kids, Winston Churchill was a British prime minister during World War II. And after he had died, he wished to give testimony to this very truth at his own funeral. And how he did it was he asked that they started the funeral with the playing of taps. Taps is a bugle tune played at the end of the day in the military, right? At the end of the day, you play taps. Followed by, he wanted, immediately after taps was finished, he wanted reveille. Reveille is a bugle tune played at the beginning of a new day. His point, of course, was that death was a gateway to God's eternal presence, Winston Churchill was in the presence of God. It was a new day, a new day that would last for eternity. Don't cry for Winston Churchill. Yes, he's dead, but he's very much alive, right? That was the point. Secondly, Jesus was glad in that he was able to bring Lazarus back from the dead. As a first responder... This one especially drives home the difference between Jesus and the rest of us mortals. What I can tell you is that it's a helpless feeling when you show up on an emergency scene, seeing someone either already dead or in some cases struggling to stay alive, and you do everything you can to help them, only for the medics to come along and pronounce time of death. Jesus was showing up to Lazarus' tomb after four days, after four days of being dead. And what does he do? He speaks a word. He speaks a word, and out Lazarus will walk, as we will see. Jesus makes alive. Jesus makes alive. 
He does so physically, for the scriptures tell us, for in him we live and move and have our being. The very breath we draw is because of the power of Christ. But Lazarus is also an illustration of the spiritual condition we are all born into. We are all born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. We are all Lazarus. We are all born in iniquity and sin. Born enemies of God. The scriptures tell us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead. We need to be born again, supernaturally. We were as dead as Lazarus. And Lazarus would have remained dead had Jesus not come along and spoke. Lazarus, come out. How does this happen? By the voice of God. It happens by the voice of God. God calls. The Holy Spirit quickens. The Holy Spirit makes us alive. And we are made alive. And when we are made alive, we hear his voice. And what do we do? We've gone through this extensively. Being Christ being our shepherd, we being the sheep, we hear his voice. And what do we do? We follow him. We hear his voice. We're his sheep. We follow him. Our condition prior to the actions of Christ is dead. And not Mostly dead, a little alive, but we're dead dead. Really dead. How else do I put it? Spiritually, we stinketh, as Martha would say. We're that dead. But God is the author of salvation, and he has a people, and he will save them. He will save them. Jesus makes the point clear that what he was about to do with Lazarus would be good for his disciples. It would be further evidence to Christ's claim regarding his identity as the Son of God. This miracle would be one that would help his disciples believe in him, and they were going to need all the help they could get once he was gone. We know the trials and the tribulations of the apostles during the early church years after Pentecost. They spread the news of the risen Christ to a lost and dying world and they suffered persecution. And not just a little persecution, they suffered persecution unto death. And it was miracles like the raising of Lazarus that convinced them of the truthfulness of Christ's claim. Also including Christ's own resurrection probably helped a lot too, right? Jesus was glad that they would see what he was about to do because it would help them believe. And what was the response to all this? Verse 16, So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So in conclusion, Jesus started with a question that was essentially, that was essentially asking the question, Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Here we have the answer. Thomas, who was also known as Doubting Thomas, was the first to say, we will go and we will die with you, Jesus. We'll go and we'll die. 
Thomas believed that returning to Judea was a death sentence, not only for Jesus, but also for the twelve with him. Thomas couldn't see what was coming. Thomas couldn't see what was coming. Thomas didn't understand what Jesus was getting at, but his answer is telling. You understand? Thomas didn't get it, yet Thomas's answer was essentially, we trust you. We trust you. Even though we don't understand, even though we're walking towards what appears to be our final days, we trust you. Of course we're coming. This leads us to answer the same question. Do we trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Are there not 12 hours in a day? What prevents us from trusting him? Has Christ ever let you down? When you really think about it, has Christ ever let you down? Could it be that Jesus' love is deeper and better and fuller than anything that you or I can even begin to fathom? Could it be that Jesus has good reason to tarry when answering our prayers? Could it be that he sees what we cannot and therefore simply asks us to trust him? Could it be that he is truly our shepherd and he would search the ends of the earth for his lost sheep? The disciples didn't understand what Jesus had in mind. They didn't see what was coming. And in fact, originally, as we saw, they originally objected to the idea of going to Bethany. They didn't have any interest in going to Bethany. Go back there, are you crazy? We can often do the same thing. We wait for God's answer to prayer, and then, because we don't see what Jesus is doing, we question whether or not He knows what He's doing. What does God tell us regarding those who have found hope in Him? Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is what it means to have hope in the Lord. In order to have hope in the Lord, you must trust Him. That's what it means to have faith. Trust Him. If God said it, I believe it. It's that simple. R.C. Sproul used to say, back when he was alive, before he went on to be with the Lord, this was kind of controversial, but it rings true. He said, believing in God does not save you. Believing in God does not save you. You must believe God. You must believe God. Trust in Him and what He has promised. That's faith. That's salvation. Believing God. Do you believe, saints? Do you believe? Regardless of what your personal circumstances are or the overwhelming obstacles that appear to be in your way, 
that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you trust him? If you don't, I would ask that you would take a moment to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. And tomorrow is not guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you uh, for the many lessons. Uh, it's just one after another, Lord, of the, of the wealth of knowledge, information, spiritual insight that, that, that through the Apostle John and what he has left us is just amazing. Some days it's like drinking from a fire hose. And Lord, I pray that in today's lesson that you would help us to know and understand that we all have 12 hours in a day and that we shall not waste the time that you have given us and we will walk and trust in you in everything that we do, no matter what that is. Please give us the strength and the courage to boldly go forth sharing the gospel with those who do not know you and to walk in your ways that we may see our path and see it clearly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.